Welcome to the Druids Grove, where we discuss all things related to Druids, their history, current day practices, and how to build a deeper connection and relationship with the earth. I'm so glad you're here. If you find what I have to share helpful, please subscribe and share with others that may enjoy it, and check the show notes for more information. Come on in, relax for a bit, and I hope you enjoy. Hello everyone, and welcome to the Druids Grove. In this episode, we're going to be talking about uh, using our senses, or a sensory experience in Druidry. So, one of the main concepts that applies to Druidry that kind of differentiates it from other pagan practices is uh, the emphasis on utilizing the five senses to bring a deeper meaning to our lives and to our spiritual experience. And as we know, many animals are also able to use their five senses as well, but humans, we differ in the sense that we have the ability to use our kind of spiritual sense or our intuition or consciousness or sixth sense or however you want to describe that, um, which kind of helps to bring an additional meaning to these experiences, which are gained through uh, the five senses. So a lot of the times we go through the day uh, without even realizing that we're using our senses. Um, it becomes so kind of routine and normal and mundane that the, the thrill or the excitement of the experience and, and being able to experience life through our five senses kind of loses its joy or its uh, thrill for us. Then one day, kind of out of nowhere, we may have an experience that makes us aware of the ability to perceive through the senses, which kind of brings back that long-lost sense that we we should have, uh, the, 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 the sense of awe and beauty. It kind of comes back to us every once in a while when we are kind of taken outside of the, the mundane world and, and have a, a wonderful experience through one of our five senses. So when we're young, you know, as a baby or a child or even a young adult, we go through life and we're just building and building on previous sensory experiences. You know, we're kind of learning how to navigate the world. And as we get older, we kind of become dull to the wonder of being a human being and being able to use these five senses. And the idea that we are part of a conscious universe experiencing itself through this physical form that we inhabit, you know, in the present time and the present space and the present moment, it loses the magic and it becomes so mundane and routine and consistent that we kind of get bored of it. Um, you know, some people just reach such depths of despair that they seek to escape their existence and to kind of move on to the next existence, you know, not even knowing what is waiting for them, but they're just so tired or bored or sad about the, their current existence. You know, and if if, if one is at the, the kind of the edge or on the precipice of thinking of ending their life, you know, would pointing out the beauty of a butterfly or the wonder of being able to find a s- snowflake and in a snowstorm and to have it land on your tongue, would that bring them back from that brink of, of despair? I mean, who knows? But, you know, over the course of our lives, the things that we find amazing, unfortunately, will eventually become kind of a burdensome, boring part of existence. And that's just, that's very common in human experience. And this happens to most people until at the very end of their life, you know, when the threat of their life coming to an end happens, all these things all of a sudden become magical and wondrous again, and they they don't want to leave this earth. 
and they're thinking of all these wonderful, beautiful things that they've experienced through their five senses. You know, how many times have we heard of people that are close to the end of their life talk about how they wish they'd taken more time to smell the flowers, to smell the roses, uh, you know, or any number of those sayings that we use to point out um, the, the beauty of, of being a human and being able to experience these things. And, and how often do we hear people use these phrases or terms or talk about these things at the end of their life and they're going to miss the experience of being a human? And in Druidry, this, the practice of Druidry helps us to reconnect with that sense of wonder and awe and appreciation that we may have lost. Or perhaps we've never had it, and this is a new way to approach life and to look at life. And we can use our five senses to walk through life and, and be in constant amazement and awe at the world that we live in. So in Druidry, how can we apply this? How can we use this? Why would we want to, to work on this and develop this practice? And I'll stop to say, if you've made it this far into my podcast, um, you are likely interested in Druidry. And as opposed to other pagan practices, and if not, you're just you're just listening, and I appreciate it. But one kind of a- idea that separates druidry from other pagan practices is this emphasis on the connection to nature through the senses. And and you know that's not to say that other spiritual practice don't practices don't use their five senses. It's just that they are so prominent and important in druidry. That's what kind of separates it as well. So when we look at our senses, we can also look at it from many different ways. We can look at it from the perspective of what functions do they serve in our body, um, as well as how do they help us function in the world around us. So the five senses that we normally think of are sight, hearing, taste, feeling, and smelling. And these have all other you know synonyms or words or whatever. Um, to use in their place, you know, we have sight or vision or hearing or sound or however, you, whatever term you want to use, but these are the five basic senses. And these senses have evolved over time to serve various functions for us. They also act on different parts of the brain. So just very briefly, again, um, if you've listened this far, you know I'm a, I'm a, I love science and I love biology and all that kind of stuff. So I love understanding how things work and why. So um, for instance, the part of the brain that is responsible for vision, for our, our sense of sight, is in the back of the brain, the occipital lobe. It's all the way in the back of the brain. And so if you're not familiar with this kind of stuff, you may think, well, our eyes are in the front of our head. Why do we have nerves that go all the way from the eyes in the front all the way to the back of the brain instead of, you know, working in the front part of the brain? And one kind of reason for this is the occipital lobe at the back of the brain sits right above the cerebellum, which is right below the occipital lobe. And the cerebellum is responsible for balance and equilibrium and a lot of other functions. So if we look at the sense of sight or sense of vision, you know, the image in front of us that we see hits our cornea, then it goes through the lens in the eye, and then it goes to the retina at the back of the eye. And from here, the image is kind of transmitted along a nerve that's called the optic nerve. And it goes through this place in the brain called the optic chiasma, which then goes to the back of the brain. And and kind of an interesting fact about the way our eyes and our vision functions is if you Google an image of the 
ophthalmic tract or track, however you want to term it, you can you can see this. Um, but on if you look at your eyes um, individually, so your left eye and your right eye, the image that you see on the left side of your left eye and the left side of your right eye, these images both get transmitted to the optic chiasm chiasma, where they then get sent to the left side of the occipital lobe, and then the same is for images on the right side of the eyeball, but they go the, the right images on the right side of your right eye and the right side of your left eye, they go to the through the optic nerve, optic chiasm, all the way back to the right side of the occipital lobe. And then, so you also have this spot on your retina, um, which is where the images that you take in gets transmitted to the optic nerve. You have a spot in the center of your retina that is blank. You have a hole in the center of your vision. But you never notice this because your other eye and your brain, they compensate for this. And there's a lot of cool tricks you can do to kind of um, find that that spot where you don't see any anything, where there's like a blank spot in your vision. You can look that up. It's pretty, it's pretty fun to kind of play with and see how your brain works. But anyway, the images go to the back of your occipital lobe, and then your cerebellum interprets what you see and sends out the impulses and motor control instructions to all the muscles in your body to help keep your balance. And so people that have had strokes in any of these areas, um, they can have vision deficits, vision problems, and also balance problems. And the reason I'm going so in-depth with this is all of our senses function like this. They have so many different pathways and nerves and and reactions and, and things that we don't even think about that keep us functioning correctly. And there's a there's this like huge interplay between uh, physical receptors, you know, which we call senses, and how they connect to different parts of the brain to interpret these kind of stimuli. So we, as humans, having consciousness uh, and a bigger brain, um, we can take these stimuli and kind of associate thoughts or feelings, or we can associate specific reactions or responses to them. You know, so if we think about um, why does uh, fecal matter or stool or poop or whatever you want to call it, why does it smell bad to us? So is that an innate kind of built-in sensory response or is it a learned response? Is it something that we have evolved over time to help protect us from harmful bacteria or is it a social function and we, th- and we are taught that, you know, it smells bad so you should avoid it, that kind of thing, you know? Um, why do some people like the sensation of, of getting piercings or tattoos, you know, while other people, they can't tolerate it. It makes them physically sick or in severe pain, whereas other people, they find it comforting. A lot of these responses that we have are dependent on our genetics and kind of our cultural influences. And so as druids, we can decide how we want to interpret these sensory experiences. We can use the senses as tools that let us interact with our environment and to develop a sense of how we want to interpret the world around us. And interestingly, I'm sure a lot of people have met people like this. Um, Some people are born without some of their senses, or they have an injury which limits their ability to perceive the world through their senses. And usually when this happens, their, their other senses become more developed to compensate for their loss of senses. So for instance, when someone's blind, um, their sense of touch usually becomes much more sensitive. And, you know, we can think of 
um, Braille. If you've ever seen text in Braille, like a book or, or, or something, um, in, you can think how small the detail is in Braille, all these tiny little dots. And even if you don't know how to read Braille, you don't know what it is, just feeling it, it's hard to differentiate you know, the space between those individual dots. Um, but, but people that are blind, either from birth or become blind, they, their sense of touch is enhanced to be able to adapt and feel those things. So, you know, another thing might be, you know, imagine closing your eyes or wearing a blindfold and then trying to walk around. You know, you could do it in the safe space where you live or something like that, or even imagine out in nature how that would feel. Just in your own home, would you be able to keep your balance very long, walking around blindfolded? Would you feel off balance? You know, you could try sitting in a chair with your eyes closed, or, or even in just in the dark, in a dark room with no windows, no light, and just tilt your head over to the side, or turn it to the left or the right, or both, turn your head very quickly, or lean forward in a chair. Does it, does it feel weird to you to not be able to see and interpret your environment? Do you feel like you are off balance because you can't use your vision to orient yourself to the horizon or orient yourself to your environment around you to know that you are upright? We become very dependent on these senses. So, Other people may lose their sense of smell or taste and kind of no longer enjoy the taste of food, while other people also they develop such a strong sense of taste or smell that they can't tolerate a lot of smells. They find, you know, even smells that would be pleasing to most people, they can become very offensive because they're so strong to them. Or other people, their sense of smell is so developed that they take it the other way. They they may get jobs where they can use their, their sense of kind of sensory discernment or whatever you want to call it like um, someone that's a chef or a sommelier or, um, you know, something like that. So we can also look to the natural world and we can see how senses are, are more important or kind of have different importance or relevance to different species. So if we think of a dog, a bloodhound dog, for instance, and its sense of smell, how strong it is, um, we can also look to like wolves and coyotes. So the image of a bloodhound may represent a police dog or like a detective dog, you know, a friendly animal that is helping us and we're using it as a tool. But a wolf or a coyote is, is nearly the same animal, but they are not tame, they're just, they're a wild animal. So they depend on their sense of smell for survival. So they need to be able to smell prey as well as predators and enemies. And a lot of wild animals, their sense of smell is, is really enhanced. We can think of um, if, if you've studied much about it, like uh, deer, you know, bear, uh, a lot of um, animals that are hunted, um, many hunters have, have had their hunt ruined because a deer or an elk or a bear is able to smell them from very far distances away when the wind shifts and blows their scent downwind to the animal. So for instance, many hunters, um, they go through great lengths to kind of manipulate or work around other animals' senses to gain an upper hand when approaching them. So, for instance, we can look at, in today's society, this is true, you know, with hunters, and we can look at um, all, of, all, all of humans and, and all of humans' history. So there's, you know, for thousands of years, people that have hunted for food have developed ways to kind of track and approach animals without getting caught because they're, they're using their senses 
to get around and manipulate the senses of the animals. So today and in the past, we can think of camouflage. So in today's world, millions of dollars, probably billions, are spent on clothing and the research and development of clothing that will help a hunter blend into their scenery so the prey cannot see them. You know, and we can also see this in the military um, with, with their uniforms, that they base their uniforms on the environment that they're going to be in. So they are, they are messing with the, the sense of sight in other humans and, and manipulating that. And camouflage, the, the, the concept, comes from a lot of times from uh, how animals use it. So animals use their own camouflage. So for instance, in ancient times, humans would use animal hides to pretend to be animals or to, to try to blend into the environment to approach prey and, you know, working on the sense of sight or vision. And hunters also, in the past and today, learn about the direction of the wind. And they, they use the elements to figure out which way the wind is blowing in an area and where the animals are and then they can work to approach animals from downwind rather than upwind so that the animal doesn't smell them. And animals also hunt in this way. They, you know, packs of coyotes will, um, will f find an, a deer and they will, they will or, or another prey animal, and they will work their way around and then approach the animal from a downwind approach rather than upwind to kind of, so they, they can sneak up on the animal as they need to. And a lot of animals also use, um, the sense of smell to communicate so we can think of you know think of your your dog when you take it for a walk um, a lot of animals will especially males will pee or urinate to mark their territory territory and it's a way for them to communicate that this is my area or um, you know and, and when your dog is going on a walk and constantly stopping to smell that's what they're doing they're their, their sense of smell is so enhanced that they are communicating with the world and, and trying to understand their environment and where their territory is and where they should and shouldn't go. And it's just a, kind of an interesting, it's an interesting journey for them. Um, so also many females, uh, female animals will release certain chemicals or scents when it's time for them to breed, which lets the males know that they are ready to mate. And other animals also will use scent as a defense mechanism. So they can release chemicals that are so pungent that it repels other animals. So, you know, for instance, a skunk, we can think of that. And animals and humans both, they've kind of developed a sense of taste that can help them differentiate what they should and should not eat. So many plants also have uh, evolved and developed and changed how they taste to entice animals to eat them or to be repelled by them as a defense. So we can look at fruits. So fruits over time uh, developed sweet sugary flavors to get animals to eat them. And, and the reason for this is because they, whatever they're used for their seeds, whatever the fruit is that contains the seeds, they want it to be palatable so animals will eat it and then digest it and then defecate the seeds out and spread and propagate the plant and, and kind of help to keep that species propagated and spread it out over a wider area of land. And, and us humans, we have manipulated this in a lot of ways by breeding foods that are either more or less flavorful. You know, so we, we breed and, and, and develop foods so that they have more of the flavor that we want. 
you know, a lot of the foods that we eat today are not natural. Um, you know, even if it's GMOs or even just, you know, think of heirloom tomatoes. So people take these heirloom tomatoes and they, they crossbreed and pollinate specific seeds and plants to keep developing a certain tomato to get more and more of the quality that they want, to get that the taste that they want, the texture that they want. But we've also learned um, uh, to eat. We, we Humans have adapted to eat foods that were not really intended to be eaten, but are kind of like a defense mechanism. So if we think of bitter or pungent plants, um, for whatever reasons, human have, humans have developed an appetite for them. So, you know, think of like blue cheese. Um, if some people like it, some people do not like it. But we have developed a strain, you know, over time, a, a strain of bacteria that our bodies can tolerate and not be poisoned by that has a pungent, distinct, very smelly smell to it. And we have you know, made the, made this like, um, you know, a special food, you know, and it's, it's just really interesting to think about. We can also think of other, other herbs or plants like ginger or cinnamon or pepper or like onions. So, you know, even like an onion, whether you're eating the bulb of the onion, um, the bulb of the onion is the big round thing that you see, like an actual onion. So, you know, that has the layers and it's very strong smelling and tasting and makes your eyes water, but also, the 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 green part of the onion that grows above ground, um, like the stem or the stalk or whatever you want to call it, um, in the southeastern U.S. they just call them green onions. So there's a lot of wild ones, but um, you see them a lot in early spring. But a lot of people like just that part of the onion. So and they they sell them in the grocery stores. Um, but whether you're eating the bulb or the part that grows above ground, the flower, whatever, there's no there's no really like function for this. There's no purpose behind eating either one of those. We've just simply found a flavor that we have told each other is good and, you know, that we should consume this to enhance our sensory experience. Um, you know, sure, sure there are some, some nutrients and that kind of things in, in like ginger or cinnamon or onions, but these are all chemicals that were developed by the plant as a defense mechanism. But we have developed a, a taste for them, an appetite for them, and we throw them into our, our other meals for to enhance our sense of flavor, to enhance our sensory experience. And we've manipulated these plants to enhance the food that we eat, even though it's, and we've, we've, we've bred them to the point where it's not poisonous to us, but we still have the flavor. Um, you know, and again, we, we do this to enhance our sense of taste and we tell everybody and tell each other and as society evolves and develops that these things are good. So, you know, other animals, if we think about it, um, other animals kind of do the same thing. Um, so we can think of um, animals that eat dead things. So uh, like a carrion bird, like a buzzard or a crow, or, or any other bird like that. So most animals don't eat these dead things. Um, you know, the strong sense of smell and the horrid taste of decayed animals is a way for our body to know that it's going to be difficult for our body to digest and it could be potentially deadly, but these other animals have developed an appetite for them because it's easier for a buzzard to find a dead animal and eat it and digest it than it is to try to, for instance, 
track down a, a rabbit or a rat or something like that, like an eagle or a, or a, a hawk would be able to do. You know, so, uh, you know, if we can see a dead deer on the side of the road, maybe a buzzard sees that and and they they get hungry. You know, like we see, we might smell a pizza in a pizza restaurant or something and, we, and our, our mouth starts watering and we get hungry because we we're anticipating a meal. You know, maybe a dead deer on the side of the road looks like a pizza <laughs> to a buzzard. Um, it's just really interesting to think about that. So, so our sense of touch is also very fascinating. Um, our sense of touch allows us to interact with and manipulate our environment. So just take a moment and think about all of the things that you can feel. Um, and just to kind of talk about a few things, you know, we can think about touching water. So it could be hot water, cold water. Um, think of a, a bowl of water, just putting your hand in that, or running water under a faucet, or a stream or a creek in the middle of winter, or an icy lake, um, or a warm lake, or the ocean. These are all different sensory experiences, but they're all water. Uh, fire. So, of course, we have we can have a candle, we can have a fire in a hearth in a home, um, we can be standing near a volcano, uh, forest fire. So there's all these different concepts of, of fire. Um, we can think of earth. So we have, um, you know, soil that you're working in, in your potted plants or a rock or an asphalt parking lot or standing on top of a mountain or again, molten lava. These are all, uh, representations of earth and then air we can also see, um, you know, a gentle breeze or a hurricane. Um, all these different kinds of representations of air. Um, aside from that, you know, we can think of other things, of course, like think of another human's skin. Um, so that can also have different sensory experiences. Some people have soft skin. Some people have tight skin that it's very firm or calloused. Um, the, the, the sensation of perspiration on your skin or your fingers being cold versus your fingers being warm or someone else's hand being cold or warm. Um, the, the objects that are around us, um, you know, think of a flat, hard table, the sharp point of a knife or a pen or something like that. So we have all these different receptors in our skin um, that have their own, you know, individual scientific names for the type of receptor they are to allow us to sense so many different kinds of touch. And this is for protection, but it's also for um, uh, enjoyment, to, to get an experience from life, and, and, and just for the basic concept and, and application of manipulating the environment around us. So some people, um, you know, other people may lose their sense of sight or whatever, um, or hearing, some people lose the experience to feel pain. They lose. They don't have. Um, they don't have really a strong sense of touch, or they are kind of numb to things. Um, they they have to learn what is unsafe to touch. So, for instance, they wouldn't feel um, a fire, you know, some burning their skin, a, st a hot stove, or a knife cutting their their tissue. They wouldn't feel that. And unfortunately, other people develop neuropathy, like diabetic neuropathy. Their nerves get so damaged from their high blood sugar that they lose the sense of feeling in their feet and toes, or they, the blood vessels are so damaged that 
that their that their skin starts to die and they don't have the sense of touch in these digits or someone has a spinal cord injury or a brain injury and they lose their sense of touch and other people are so hypersensitive they can develop conditions um, like one for instance is called complex regional pain syndrome so these people may have an injury to an area um, it could be anything sprain an ankle um, a knee surgery whatever and they avoid touching the area for a long time because it hurts when they touch it um, and I've, I've worked with a lot of patients uh, with this injury or this type of injury um, but they have um, they don't touch the skin around this area and these nerves then become hypersensitive so um, even just a feather brushing lightly against their skin it feels like they're being stabbed or or hit with a baseball bat like it's just severe excruciating pain just with a very gentle light touch so our sense of touch is it's it's amazing we can choose how to use it we can choose how to connect to the world around us so if we think of our skin we can feel the sun on our skin on a cold winter's day which may remind us of the coming spring so you know i, I I like this feeling a lot to go outside on a winter's day and it's cold and, and it hasn't, you know, the sun hasn't been out for a few days and then all of a sudden the sun comes out. And if, you know, just to stand and face the sun and to feel the, the skin on your face start to get warm, it's just, it's an amazing feeling, <clears throat> you know, or uh, we can feel like the deep pressure of a hug or a loving embrace from someone that we're close to that helps us feel safe and comfortable. And, and animals, uh, they use their sense of touch to communicate as well. So we can think of um, like packs of animals that huddle, huddle together for warmth or to, to kind of sense each other nearby and to know that they are safe and protected and they're all together. Um, mothers, you know, um, animal mothers lick and clean their animal babies to kind of build a connection with them and to know that they're safe and that they should trust them. Um, others use uh, their sense of touch as a defense mechanism. So we can think of a porcupine, like the quills of a porcupine, or a frog that has poisonous slime and chemicals on its skin. So if an animal touches it, it will it will become poisoned. And plants also. Plants can work using their sense of touch to provide protection. You know, I've always kind of been confused about like poison ivy, for instance. It's kind of a strange one. Um, poison ivy, poison oak, all of these things, it they they have this chemical which causes a reaction, but the reaction is delayed. So I've always wondered, like, how is an animal supposed to know which plant it was that caused this reaction if it's like a delayed reaction? But anyway, that's that's just one example. Or we can look to, like, cacti, cactuses, and, and the spikes that they have. So if an animal comes to try to eat a cactus in the middle of the desert, that cactus has a lot of water in it and can be a good source of, of uh, hydration or food. But they have these spikes on them to protect them. And we can also look at our sense of hearing, uh, which is also very valuable to valuable to us, but also all animals. Um, you know, think we would not be able to communicate verbally if we did not have a sense of hearing. And and many cultures have developed many different languages and dialects just by making different noises with their mouths and their tongues for others to hear them, and then they make up their own meanings behind these sounds. So, if you you know, it's interesting to think about, but we're just making sounds with our mouth and we've developed our own form of communication and our own language that these sounds that I make with my mouth right now convey a meaning to you. 
So, you know, and, and that's another thing that um, people, a lot of people get very offended by how, whatever term you use, cuss words, curse words, uh, cursing, whatever you want to say. But, you know, all it is is a sound that I'm making with my mouth. And if you are offended by it, that's because you have a cultural, um, you know, cultural indoctrination about what that term means or how you are assuming that I am using it in this way to be offensive to you. So it, it it's really interesting, and we can look at other languages too. So the the sounds that other people make with their mouths don't make any sense to us, but that's because they have just developed their own meaning behind these own their own sounds, and that's what they mean to them. And we can look at animals um, and, and even human babies. So animal young and human young, they start developing the ability to make sound with their mouths very early. And this comes from their ability to hear others around them. So, you know, if a young one has a hearing deficit, their speech is usually delayed because they can't hear the examples of what words and sounds around them mean or watch, you know, how they can watch people move their mouths, but they don't associate it with a specific sound if they're not able to hear them. You know, or even worse, in the natural world, they these animals could meet an early death. Um, you know, they're not able to use their sense of hearing to hear and avoid predators or to hear the movement of the herd. You know, if their eyes are closed and the herd hears something and gets up and starts running off, if they can't hear them, they don't know, and they don't know to follow them. And with the sense of sound, we can also think of music. So humans have developed music of all kinds to express and evoke emotion. You know, we can think of the complexity of, um, you know, classical music or or rap music or metal music or whatever it is but you know even going back to the early stages of human people took animal skins and stretched them over over sticks to make drums to make the drum sound or even tapping sticks together tapping rocks together um taking sticks and and using other small tools to drill holes in them to make things like flutes, you know, that kind of thing, or animal bones. Uh, cultures used to take animal bones that were hollowed out and drill, you know, use stone and drill little holes in them and make flutes out of animal bones. And it's pretty interesting. There are a lot of, um, there's kind of a resurgence of um, music that is coming about and, and that, are, that are using a lot of the old natural instruments. And it's really cool to to see that kind of music and it's very interesting to listen to it kind of brings back a um it's it's a it's a type of music that you just feel down deep in your soul that is nothing like uh you know society's music today so if we look at the animal kingdom they have their own music too so some would debate like bird song so a bird you know the noise that birds make so is it is it the nature is it is it music of nature or is it communication? You know, r- realistically, it's communication. Um, it's it's a, the language of birds, but it also can be very uh, melodic or very musical to it. And we could also say the same thing for a dog barking or the howl of a wolf, um, you know, or the, the roar of a bear. Um, all, all these different animals um, have different sounds that they make to communicate, but a lot of the, even that music that I was talking about, they incorporate uh, sounds from animals. Um, there's a lot of um, kind of Norwegian music where they will incorporate the sound of crows or ravens. 
um, you know, that kind of thing. And it's, it's really kind of a magical experience to hear that. And when we go into nature, we can sit and we can be completely still and we can listen to the sound of nature. So frequently, um, when, when a human goes into the woods, and you've probably experienced this, the woods will become quiet, um, you know, or at least get um, less noisy. And I, I experienced this this morning. Um, before I recorded this, uh, I went on a hike, about a three-mile hike in my local park, me and my dog. We go there a lot. Um, but I'm off work today, so that's that's what I enjoy doing if the weather's nice. And there's a valley where it is just, it's almost eerily quiet. Um, but you can enter the forest, and, and it gets very quiet. But if you sit long enough, like, I, I just found a log, and I just sit, sit down, or sometimes a stone or whatever, and I just sit, and I hold my dog, and I just listen. And you can, the squirrels will start moving in again. The birds will start singing again. Um, you know, if you find a place and you sit still, um, the forest will start to resume their normal movement and their normal patterns and normal sounds once they see that you're not a threat. And it's really enjoyable, if you've never done this, to just go sit and listen to the animals. You know, you can, um, have you, have, I don't know if you've ever done it, you probably have, but have you ever heard two crows or two ravens talking to each other across an open field? Um, <clears throat> you know, um, behind where I live, there's a field and on either side, there's like a, it's surrounded by trees and there frequently there are crows on one side, the left and the right. And you know, the, the ones on the left will start calling and then the ones on the right will start calling. It's, it's really interesting to hear them communicate or birds, birds will do the same thing. Um, or maybe, uh, you've heard the cries of a, a pack of coyotes when they leave their den at night. If you've never <laughs> had this experience, it's very strange. Um, uh, just a, a very quick story. Uh, the the first time uh, my wife was brought up in uh, kind of a city landscape. She she was never out in the country very much. She would go on trips and things like that. But we first visited my um, my grandmother, and she lived kind of out in the country. And and we were <laughs> we were walking down um, outside. We were outside down near the garage, and all at once, all of these coyotes just started yipping and yipping and barking and they were on the other side of this fence and they were just running you know and you could hear the movement hear their hear their footprints and hear the yipping and she was like what is that and we had a little dog at the time and he kind of you know he kind of puffed up like he was going to go chase after them and he you know he weighed like eight pounds and I was like no get the dog go in the house it's okay um, you know, because they were pretty close. But if you've never heard that, it's a, a very terrifying experience. So you can think back to, you know, let's go back a few thousand years. Um, you know, you're in a little hut or you're in a cave and, and you hear a pack of coyotes or a pack of wolves at night and they're coming near you. Um, you know, but but why do coyotes do that? Why do wolves do that? Well, when, when the pack leaves the den, each animal will sound off. They're, they're yipping and yipping to let the others know that they are all here and they're all present. They can tell when one of the members of the pack is not there. And, you know, it's also a way that they can communicate when they're hunting to let others know their location so that they can stay organized. So, you know, if, if they get, if one can tell that the pack is too far away when they're running through the woods at night or whatever, they can kind of head toward the sound to get back in, in the group. Um, you know, but there's also a lot of other ways that we can listen to, to the sound of animals or nature um, and, and, and find beauty in it. So I know these are going to sound kind of weird, but, you know, have you ever listened to a caterpillar walk on a tree limb? And I know that sounds crazy because 
you know, you think of a caterpillar, it's so small, there's no possible way you can hear it. But if you get your ear right and up next to a caterpillar or any other small insect walking on a limb, if you can get close enough, or a leaf or, or a blade of grass, you can hear that sound. Um, you know, one of my favorite sounds is being in a forest when it's snowing. And it's if you've never experienced this, I would I would encourage it. It's amazing. So there's just this complete silence because if you look it up, uh, snow absorbs sound. So sound waves um, they can't bounce off the the tree limbs and the leaves and and the bushes. The the snow there absorbs sound waves. So it's like very eerily silent. And it's really beautiful. But when it's snowing, you can hear the snow land. The snowflakes land on the other snow. And, and I, I know that seems like you would not be able to hear that, but you, you truly can. So this is a very difficult thing to experience if you're in a city or even a small town. You know, there's cars going by and people talking. And, you know, mostly it's like traffic and the humming of mechanical equipment, you know, air conditioners or heaters or whatever. But when you're out in the woods in the snow or in a field in the snow and there's nothing around, you can hear the snowflakes land. It's very beautiful. So, you know, wherever you are, Try to employ your sense of hearing to connect with nature. Try to try to hear what is going on around you. So then another sense that many may not even consider a sense is, you know, within this context of our five senses or whatever, is our sense of intuition. And some people can refer to this as the sixth sense. And while it is kind of difficult to identify it as a a form or a way through which we can perceive the world, it does serve a very distinct purpose and it, it can give us feedback on what's going on around us and to help us interact with the environment. So it's a way for us to have a sense about something that we're seeing in front of us or a sense uh, of what we should be doing. So, so for instance, today um, I was on this walk and it's, it's a trail that goes through the woods and I was in that valley where it's very quiet and, and I was stopping and I had a sense, I don't know why, uh, you know, I just, it felt, it was like, look over to the left. So I looked over to the left and I see a little um, place by a tree where the leaves are disturbed. And I was like, okay. And, and it was like, go, you know, go over in that direction. That's, that's what my intuition was telling me. So I started walking and usually when this happens, I start looking around at everything. I'm listening I'm looking at the leaves, I'm looking up in the trees, maybe there's an animal, maybe there's something, you know, I'm, 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 all my senses are heightened to experience what my intuition is trying to tell me. And so I go over to this one tree, I look down um, where uh, the, the ground is disturbed, a lot of times it's like a, a deer bed, you can see hoof prints or something like that. Um, but I looked up at this tree, and from the trail I could not see this, because it was on the back side of the tree, but I go around and there's a little... Um, it looks like a face and this is like the third tree I found in this forest where there's just like a little horizontal slit for mouth and two little kind of offset eyes and above it the tree bark was really disturbed and it almost looked like like hair or the top of a head it was just it was really fascinating and then you know I, I kept looking around and I don't know how it got there you know I'm two miles back in the woods uh, but there was a small um, like a saucepan, um, if you imagine just a little pan with a handle, and and it was extremely old. Um, it looked like aluminum. It was just rusted, holes in it, that kind of thing. But someone had taken it, and there was a small hole in the handle, and they had slid it 
they had hung this little saucepan thing on a, the little nub of a tree limb that was sticking out. And I thought, wow, that's really that's really interesting. And then I, I kept looking around, and then there was a little glass jar, uh, maybe 10, 15 feet away. Um, I saw the top of a glass jar. So I go over there to look at that glass jar, and it's covered up with leaves. All I can see is just this top half of the opening. And I move the leaves away, and inside, um, where it's laying on its side, there's dirt about maybe a quarter of the way up, and there's all this beautiful moss, this bright green moss just growing from the inside of this little small jar. It was about the size of a, like a soup can. It was about that big. It was a glass jar. But it had this layer of dirt and this beautiful bright green moss with these little these little flowers growing on top of the moss. And it was kind of just flowing out of this jar like a waterfall. And th- these are the kind of experiences that in Druidry, if you're open to them, if you use your sense of intuition and you use your other five senses, you can experience these types of things. If I had just had headphones in, listening to music or a podcast or whatever and I'm just hoofing it down this trail you know I got to get to the end of this trail and then I'm going to turn around and go out because I'm I'm here to exercise or whatever you know you're not going to have these experiences and you may not want to and that's okay too but as far as druidry that is a huge component of druidry is connecting with the things around you and before I got into druidry I, I used to be that person you know I enjoyed mountain biking so I am just flying through the woods on a mountain bike, not paying attention to anything except what's in front of me so I don't have an accident. You know, and it was like thrill-seeking kind of thing and exercise. But now I, fi- I can find beauty just walking 100 feet into the woods. Um, you know, today I just I spent about an hour and a half just walking back through the woods because I wanted to, to explore more. And there's a certain place that I do like to get to because there's a kind of, it's kind of a spiritual energy to me. But I don't, I don't have that drive to go into the woods to hike a certain distance or to accomplish a specific goal like that. My goal is to um, just get out there and, 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 you know, I can, like I said, I can go a hundred feet into the woods and just have this beautiful sensory spiritual experience. So I would encourage you to, to try to do that. Even if you live in the city, you can, you can try to do that. And after exploring these senses, we can understand different ways we can use them. So we can approach nature from maybe an educational perspective. Um, You know, we just want to learn more about how nature functions. We can use our senses to develop appreciation and connection to nature. Um, You know, when I'm in the woods and I'm in the forest and I hear an acorn drop from a tree and land on the forest floor, I can dismiss that and just, you know, I heard something, I look over, and then I ignore it and keep walking. Or I can look deeply into that. I can look at the symbolism behind that this this thing that happened, and I can learn many lessons from this, many lifelong lessons, simply from an acorn falling from a tree. But as druids, it is up to us to decide how we want to use our senses in nature. So, the goal is for us to use our senses to connect to nature, in whatever way we want to individually that works for us. So you can choose to interact with nature how you want to. You can, you can develop your own perception and your own meanings behind what you see, hear, smell, taste, and touch out in the world. So I apologize if this has been very long, but uh, it's, it's another topic of Druidry that I just find fascinating and, and a beautiful part of it. You know, from the physical aspect to the biological processes to the spiritual component to it. So 
I hope you found this helpful, and I hope you get out there and use your senses in the world. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining in at the Druid's Grove. I thoroughly enjoyed sharing this time and information with you. I hope you learned something and are inspired to build a connection to the earth and the world around you. If you liked what was shared, please feel free to give back at Buy Me a Coffee. Join me on Substack, where I have transcripts, or listen on YouTube, and find the group on social media. For more information, check the show notes. I'll see you in the Grove. Until next time. Thank you.